Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Keith Law. Welcome to episode 95 of the Keith Law Show. My guest this week is going to be Tim Grierson, film critic uh, and Cardinals fan, although we ended up not talking about the Cardinals in this conversation. We're going to talk a lot about the logistics of film festivals and how similar it is to a lot of parts of my job and the jobs of baseball scouts and trying to figure out who to see when and how best to get our thoughts out once we have seen players or films, especially when we're dealing with tight time frames. Just real quick, since Tim and I went pretty long, I'll keep the intro short. I did have one new piece since the last podcast. I saw Kumar Rocker's debut, his 2020 debut. He was drafted 10th overall last year by the Mets, but ended up not signing. He is pitching for an independent team in Troy, New York, the Tri-City Valley Cats, and wrote up my thoughts on what I saw and what this might mean for him in this year's draft. One other note, I will be posting a new top 100, a new big board for the draft uh, the follow, the week after this podcast. That's the week of June 13th. And the week after that, we'll do my second mock draft, at which point we'll be about a month away from the actual draft itself. So my pace of mocks, especially in draft coverage in general, will accelerate between now and the actual draft, which is July 17th. Now, my guest today is my friend Tim Grierson. You may know him from the Grierson and Leach podcast with Will Leach, also a frequent guest on this podcast. You can find Tim on Twitter at Tim Grierson, G-R-I-E-R-S-O-N. You can find his writing at Screen International. He is the senior U.S. film critic over at Paste Magazine, right alongside my board game reviews, and at Mel Magazine. Tim, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So I had you on, wanted to have you on uh, for a couple of different reasons, but one of the big ones is you just got back from the Cannes Film Festival and listening to your recap of that with Will and just reading the uh, recap that you wrote on your uh, personal blog, timgrierson.blogspot.com, where you rank everything you saw at the film festival, which as somebody who just loves to rank things in general, I greatly appreciate. (laughs) But it got me thinking about the logistics of attending a film festival and how it reminds me a little bit of when scouts and occasionally I go to some of these showcases where there's you know literally 200 players that we're trying to see over the course of multiple days and there's three or four games a day even conference college conference tournaments can be like that so I would love to hear from you sort of what is that experience like of going to a film festival whether it's Cannes, Toronto, Venice, you know Podunk, wherever it is you know I mean, first of all, like, how do you prep? Do you go in with some kind of, here's my general agenda, or do you just kind of go in cold and it's like, I'm going to figure out, once I get there, I'll figure out what movies I want to see? Well, first of all, I would say the Podunk Film Festival is really great. They always, well, premiere, yeah. they always premiere the new Wes Anderson film there. Weirdly enough, I don't, they, yes. have some, they have some sort of like special deal with them. But um, it's funny, and actually, I, I've been meaning to talk to you about this for quite some time, because I feel like in some ways our work, in a weird way, overlaps, but maybe mm-hmm. not in terms of this, because... For film festivals, it can vary in terms of what my prep work is. But in general, the way it works is that I go primarily for Screen International. And Mm -hmm. that's a trade publication. They're based in London. And people who know maybe, say, Variety or The Hollywood Reporter, those are trades. And those are based in the United States. Screen International is based in London. And so it has more of an international readership. Not that those others don't, but we are more sort of focused on Europe and Asia and the whole globe as opposed to maybe not necessarily America uh, first and foremost. And so because I go to festivals for Screen International, I go with a team of critics. Mm. And so what we do is our amazing uh, editor, my editor, Finn, she kind of divvies up assignments with the different critics. And so I say that to say that I'll look at, for instance, the Cannes Film Festival and go, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about this movie. I'm really excited about this movie. But I also know that I don't necessarily get my first pick of what my assignments are going to be. 
because we all have to kind of share and share alike. Mm -hmm. And so I'll sometimes be seeing something and reviewing something at the same time that another movie is playing simultaneously that I want to see. And maybe I can catch it later in the festival. The thing that you were saying about scouting that's sort of, I'm kind of curious and maybe sort of comparable to what I do is that sometimes it's nice to have another critic see a movie first and say, don't bother. Mm. It's like, oh, it's actually, and this actually sort of happened at Cannes this year. And you know, we can get into more kind of the, the, the weeds if you want, but like, there were a lot of sort of prestigious longtime veteran filmmakers who brought new movies to the festival. And a lot of times people would say, well, it's good, but it's not one of their best. So mm -hmm. don't like rush out and see it. And that would make you sort of change your schedule and say, okay, maybe I can sort of like deprioritize this movie. And then the opposite happens. And I'm curious if this happens in your world where it's like, oh, this movie that you haven't heard of that's from like a first time filmmaker or a second time filmmaker is amazing. And then everybody shifts their schedule. And that actually happened a couple times this year at Cannes where it was a first-time filmmaker. It was on a, a side platform part of the festival that people don't necessarily go to a lot. But the initial reports were, this movie is amazing. It's called After Sun. It's a UK film. And people were like, oh, After Sun is amazing. You have to like change your schedule to see it. And so people were like changing their schedules. And I had so many conflicting things I was never able to get to it, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but that also happens at festivals. And so you kind of go in, my 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 thing is like a special case where I have assignments, I do my assignments, and then in between the assignments, I figure out things I want to see. But for a lot of my colleagues, it'll be, I'm going to hit these seven things because they're the things I'm most interested in. Or sometimes I have other colleagues who their editors will say, and this happens more during the fall in like, like Toronto or the New York Film Festival where their editors will say, um, these movies probably have the most Oscar buzz, see those movies. And it becomes much more of a, depending on the place where you're writing, if it's more sort of Oscar driven and people want to know like, what are the Oscar movies? What's going to win the Oscar? It's like, no, you're going to see Belfast and you're going to see this movie. And you're going to see that movie. <laughs> and you know, we're both not big Belfast fans, but before it came out, like Belfast, Kenneth Branagh, personal story that has some Oscar buzz yep. to it. We should, you know, that is a movie that everybody needs to see. And so you're always, depending on who you are writing for, in some ways, um, your schedule is sort of dictated by what your circumstance is. In some ways, like going to Sundance, if you're just a regular movie lover, is kind of great because you can just buy tickets and go see things. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, you know, you mentioned my ranking for the Cannes Film Festival. There's like, what, 36 or something like that movies on there. If I didn't have to write, there would have been more. But sure. you have to also like, you know, a, a good friend of mine um, who's a film critic once said like, you know, because some people will say, boy, it must be nice to like get paid to, to watch movies. And the truth is what he, what he always says is that we actually don't get paid to watch movies. We get paid to write about movies. Right. And so that is... That's actually like a lot of the work at a film festival. It actually, like, is in writing about these things, and that takes time, and that takes away from uh, from actually seeing films at a film festival. But in terms of preparing, that's kind of what I have often learned is I don't actually make a schedule until I get my assignments because I would have to toss out that schedule completely anyway, and then you know sort of refigure everything. Um, but yeah, but that's how I that's how I approach a film festival. And if anybody's listening and wondering. Um, I love that. I actually love like the scheduling, <laughs> the, the tetrising of figuring sure. that out is an absolute blast. And that's one of the things I love about festivals. It's, the, it's funny because that's how I think about going into each spring for the draft. The minor league stuff I do is just dictated by like, who's coming through my area. I rarely fly for minor league games because where I live, there's seven, six or seven minor league teams within two hours. So I will never run out of my early players to see. In fact, this week I'm looking and I'm going to I'm going to end up in a situation where I have to just pick between two games, I think, on Friday night because there's going to be two pitchers, both worth seeing at different ballparks. So it's just, yeah. you know, that that is that's not the issue. It's the draft where I have to fly to see most of these guys. My budget is not unlimited. It's fine. Um, but I have to make some choices. And the one I and so I start. This process, like in February, I'll start looking, talking to people who do I need to see, see this guy, see this guy's players I know from past years too, and start, you know, even assembling a spreadsheet where okay, this weekend I might do this, this weekend I might do this. 
the final schedule never looks anything like that. Right? <laughs> I had, I thought I was coming out to you in late April to see Brooks Lee against, I think it was Santa Barbara, and then ended up with a chance to see Brooks Lee sooner. And we're just like, well, this is cheaper, easier, avoids a cross country flight. Like it just blows, stuff blows up. Guys get hurt, et cetera. And it, yeah, I end up in this core conflict with the draft, especially where it is between seeing players who might be the best players, you know, players where I've seen video or have notes from scouts, which I think this guy might be particularly good versus I want to see the guys who are going to get drafted high. Um, and those are not necessarily the same thing, right? Belfast is a high draft pick, but maybe not necessarily <laughs> the best prospect. Right. right. And, and so like this year I had one where uh, – there was a player in Indianapolis, Dukanich. They call him Ichard because it's because his name is not right. It's a little bit difficult to spell, I guess. And then if you just if you have too many consonants in your last name, they just call you Ichard. And he came out of the gate, high school pitcher. Comes out of the gate, he's hitting 98 first two starts or so. Big kid. This guy's going in the first round, clearly. And I try not to see if I can avoid it, try not to see high school pitchers, especially first time out, especially if it might be cold where they are, like give them a couple weeks to get going. And unfortunately for this kid, then he had an outing where he just got rocked in the final, the following outing, he walks eight guys and suddenly he's gone from, he's going in the top 20 picks to, you know what, he might end up going to Vanderbilt instead. So I, you know, had been trying to work him in somehow, drop him and instead Max Wagner, this kid at Clemson who barely even played last year, is suddenly among the NCAA Division I leaders in home runs. And I'll be honest, April 1st, I didn't know who Max Wagner was. If you, if anybody's curious, go take a look at what his stats were in 2021. And you'll think, how the hell is this guy a first-round draft pick this year? But it almost didn't matter what I thought of the player at that point. This guy was – he's going in the first round or very, very likely to go in the first round. And – there's a real paucity of information about him because last year he didn't play that much. And nobody, I mean, you look like Jonathan Mayo, Jim Callis, same thing. They didn't have him on their early lists either. We were all in the same boat. So there's particular value in me racing out to go see that guy, regardless of whether I think he's good. I do think, I think he can really hit. I don't think he's a third baseman in the long run, but he was worth the trip. But it was that choice, right? That I have so many bullets to spend over the course of the spring and spent one of them to go see Max Wagner. Got him in a matchup with another player of note, but it was, see this guy, not that guy. And that is what I run into constantly in the draft between, you know, it's a little bit budget, a little bit is trying to do some minor league stuff at the same time. Some of it is just kind of managing, you know, work-life balance. And as you said, it's the the writing, right? When I have to do a mock draft coming up, I don't really want to be traveling the three or four days before that runs because of the sheer amount of time I spend not just writing it, but like researching, texting people, calling people so that I end up not seeing, you know, there there have been times this spring where it's like I could have gone to that game, but I had to write. And I feel bad about that because I'd rather, I assume the same, right? You'd rather see the movies. Yeah. Right? But eventually you're like, no, I actually have to sit down and put my thoughts down. And, and I want, it's that kind of leads into the next question too. Do you, at a festival where you're seeing films, so many films in a short period of time, how do you manage that in your head to get it down on paper and not lose thoughts or notes on specific films? Because, I mean, I, I watch a lot of movies, generally movies you and Will tell me to watch. And, you know, I think I, if I were doing this for a living, I'd be taking notes constantly, and which is not easy to do in a dark theater because there's a lot. A, a good movie, a two-hour – we're going to talk about some three-hour movies coming up where hey, – how do you just manage that? I get to take notes at a game, but I feel like you probably don't. Well, it's very funny. I a lot of my colleagues actually do take notes in oh, wow. movies. Um, and I was actually at a screening last night of something, and a, a friend of mine and a colleague is like, "Can I borrow a piece of paper? I actually forgot my notebook." And mm. so, and she was writing on both sides of the of the piece of paper, and I actually felt bad that I didn't give her more paper. She oh, only yes. asked for one piece. Oh yeah, right. I, I, I'm you not couldn't a spare big... a square. <laughs> exactly. And I first of hopefully many Seinfeld references in this podcast today, <laughs> and I. I am not a big note taker only because I have found – for me, it's more plot things. And this happens more at a film festival. To answer mm -hmm. your question sort of directly, when I'm at a film festival, the press notes tend to be pretty light. And so they often sure. don't have like relationships between characters. And so often my notes are, this is his girlfriend. They are not married. 
because sometimes you don't know like what's this relationship between the couple in this movie and you want to get that stuff right is this his father is this his stepfather things small things that most people would not care all that much about but you kind of want to get right because when you're going to film festivals and you're writing for a trade you kind of want to get all the facts correct which is sort of a funny thing like because when people read reviews, they're interested in facts. You know, you yeah. want to know all this stuff. But you do want to get this stuff right. And so I'm actually um, – most of my notes are kind of around that. Or like character names. Often if I'm seeing uh, international films in other languages, even the spellings of characters' names can be inconsistent in the end credits versus yeah. the subtitles. And so stuff like that, that's actually more what I'm doing. My colleagues more at home, but even at a film festival, will write things like, you know, slow pace or, you know, observations that they want to hold on to. I I tend to be – I'm pretty lucky that I kind of hold on to what I'm thinking as I'm watching something. And also, this is a film festival-specific thing, but once I see a movie, I am going home and writing that review immediately afterwards. And so it's not a situation where it's like, see four movies – and they go home and write about all four movies. We are turning these reviews around faster because it's a film festival. There's sort of a speed element involved. And it's also a thing I've really kind of come to like. And the joke I often make is like, I was never a sports writer, but this is as close as I get to being a, like a, a, like yeah, game three of the world series has just happened. You're on now, deadline. Now, yeah, I'm on deadline. I have to write the thing. And I, you know, for festival reviews, you are usually writing those within about two to three hours. And I actually really like, because sometimes people will say, oh, that must be really kind of a drag because how can you like have the time to really sort of process it? But I've been doing it for like more than 10 years now and I'm really used to just having the experience of the movie and then putting the experience down as best I can when I'm writing about it. And that's actually one of the reasons why after I see a film at a festival or just in general, I actually don't talk to my colleagues afterwards because I just want it to be as like preserved in my head as possible. And then I just walk back to my flat or wherever I'm staying at a festival mm-hmm. and write the review and then find out how other people felt about it. So often there's kind of this like, you know, this kind of this great thrill of I'm part of the first audience to see this movie and I have no idea how anybody else feels about this movie and I'm going to write about it. And in a few hours, I'm going to find out. And I never get tired of that feeling. And sometimes you're like, oh, I'm I'm on the high side. Right. Just, I, I like this movie more than other people. Or, oh, I guess I like Top Gun Maverick less. I, I like it less than most people do. And that's always a surprise to me because I just never – I never know because I just don't talk to people. And then I read the reviews and go, oh, that's – there's always sort of it's it's sort of a Christmas morning feeling I have to say <laughs> for me I really I really do get, get kind of get kicked out like the reviews are out and so it's always sort of a fun um uh, sort of experience in doing that the few times I do have to um see movies at a festival but I can't write about them immediately I will do like a very cursory like first draft on my phone I'll actually type in my mm-hmm. notes like. First paragraph, I can kind of get that down and kind of get like a a running start. Then that kind of like propels me the rest of the way. It's not my preferred way. I mean, it might, might sort of surprise people, but I actually prefer like going home and having that like two hours and just writing as opposed to – because when you see other movies, it sort of dilutes the experience. And you, sure. sort, of, you sort of want to just have that movie – you want that movie to kind of have its moment in your head. And so that's – yeah, that's that's how I kind of approach uh, writing at a festival. And my, my my colleagues' notes are often utterly indecipherable, but they say like the process of writing it down for them mm-hmm. helps them remember. But I just – It I just absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's – honestly, it's why I do it sometimes for players where even if I have video – because um, generally I do most events I go to, I always have the video camera. Usually I try to film, um, particularly at games where I'm looking at a, a more a smaller number of players. So I'm yeah. here to see, you know, one pitcher, two hitters, and that's kind of it. And I can really bear down. Um, whereas you, 
for example, like the Perfect American, uh, Perfect Game All American Game, which is an annual showcase that some of the best high school players for the following year's draft class. You're just kind of looking at everybody. So I just go there and I'm like, I'm just going to let this come to me and just it's general observations because you can't really scout a player that well like that I, at that age off of a single game, especially because they might get you know two at bats. They throw one inning, but in a, other contexts where I'm there to see a more limited number of players. I'm shooting a lot of video. I don't really need to take a ton of notes on what I think of the delivery, but I still often do write stuff like that down for really for two reasons. One is just for memory. This is what I thought at that moment. Let me make sure I put this down. So that's still there whenever I go back and write about the player because often it's not the same day. And second for me then is also go check the video and see if this is true. This guy's arm really late. It looks late. Oh, is he getting out over his front side? Well, I shot some video from up the line to see where he's finishing his delivery. Yeah, I don't know. My hit rate on those is maybe like 60 or 70%. But a lot of times I look at the video and it's like, nope, that's actually not true. So glad I wrote it down. Glad I checked it for my own sake. But at the same time, like if I didn't write that down, would I have even gone through that whole process? Would I have considered that particular variable? I'd rather just do that and try to be more comprehensive, especially, like I said, in situations where it's fewer players. I'm just dealing with a shorter list. In the draft, I often go to a game and I'm seeing one or two players, um, particularly you know high school kids. Very lucky if you get any kind of matchup, unless you go to um, NHSI is a thing they do in North Carolina every year. I was there this year. It's 16 teams from across the country. Pretty much every one of those teams has one draft prospect, maybe two. You get all those in one spot and it's probably a lot like a film festival too where we're like wait over here is this guy over here is this guy at least it's all in one facility but you're outside of situations like that i'm going to see just one or two guys and i have that ability to bear down and make my notes kind of more specific while also knowing that i'm supplementing with video and afterwards i can go back and check what i actually said about it so it does sound to me like there's quite a bit of similarity between, you know, especially your approach at a film festival where you're trying to make all of these decisions in real time. Yeah, they won't let me video them, unfortunately, though. Damn it. (laughs) Though I have to say, it is is quite funny when you were saying that, Keith. I was actually thinking during the pandemic, um, more often than not, we were given uh, screeners for things to see as opposed to going to theaters because theaters were not open. And I will say that one of the nice things about having a screener is that you could double check something. Going back to the fact checking thing, like yeah, of course. Wait, what was the thing? I I tend not to quote a lot in my in my movie reviews, but during the pandemic, I did because I would go, oh, that line that he said, I'm gonna rewind and yeah. listen to, and, and write that down. So the video thing is sort of an interesting like um, sort of comparison. Your work versus my work. I'm curious when you are scouting, like, like you said, you're you're there to see two people because of the draft. Mm-hmm. Do you have anybody at the facility, anybody who's there, also there, who is curious how you feel about the player you're seeing? The reason why I'm asking is because one of the things that I sometimes have to deal with, especially at the film festival, because a lot of times, I think it's important for people to understand that often, like to use Cannes for an example, mm-hmm. Top, Top Gun Maverick played at Cannes, Elvis played at Cannes. Uh, 3,000 Years of Longing played at Cannes. Those movies are going to come out. They already have uh, Crimes of the Future, which just, just came out already recently. out, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like those movies, they have distribution. Uh, people are going to see them. But a lot of movies um, at Cannes or at other film festivals, uh, no, no company has picked them up to release them. And so in a lot of ways, the reviews can be really crucial to say, this movie is good. You should pick this up. Or ah, it's actually kind of mediocre it's not worth it and i say that to say that sometimes um when i'm dealing with publicists who sort of set the screenings up or give me press notes or kind of or uh, they sort of help me in terms of what i need to do for my work i know that there is pressure on them because they're trying to help sell that movie and so they will sometimes say like oh so what 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 did you think of the movie and one of the things I love is that for Screener National, we have a policy that we cannot discuss our reactions until the review actually comes out. So I don't sure. have to deal with saying, I didn't like your movie or I think your movie is amazing. And they have to wait for the review. Is there anything in your work where you're looking at players who are going to be drafted or it depends on where they're going to be drafted in the draft where someone comes up to you because they, they're kind of like not leaning on you, but they're like, they kind of want to know. They want to know 
your reaction, other scouts' reactions. What What's the expectation for this player? Should we be thinking first round? Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a family member. Does that happen to you? Oh, yes. All of the above. Uh-huh. Um, the parents are the worst, honestly. Uh-huh. And twice already this year, a parent, a mom in both cases, um, and of two, has reached out to comment on something negative I said about their sons. One was a draft player. Actually, it wasn't even that I said something negative. It was that I just didn't have Mommy Top 100. And she left a um, comment that was, I believe my editors actually deleted, which was probably a good thing um, for her, sort of saying, it, it, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but she was like, are you just saying he's not any good? You know, it, it was like the hundred and first player in the draft is still pretty good, right? I just yeah. happened to stop at a hundred because you know I always say it's because we have ten fingers, right? That's why we end up with lists of this length. Um, and the other was a mother professional player, and I just don't, I just don't interact. I don't answer. If they were to come up to me at a game, I would be very polite, just like I'm not discussing your son with you. I'm not discussing your family member with you because. There's just this huge asymmetry between the two of us here. You have an emotional investment. I am trying to be as objective as I possibly can. We are not going to connect on this. Obviously, if I said nice things about their son, they think I'm the greatest ever. Right. Um, you know, and that's a nice byproduct, but I have to separate myself from that part of it. Uh, agents ask, um, would be agents and current, you know, this is my player. What did you think of the player? And I have to try to be especially if they ask before I have written anything, I try to be somewhat guarded as honest as I can without giving away the whole thing, because I don't want them then to try to sway what I'm going to write. And even if I don't agree with them, it's still probably going to be in the back of my mind that they thought this, or they thought I was wrong about this, or just that they're going to be reading. And I know that they do read what I write. And then of course, scouts and and other executives will often ask because either because they want my opinion specifically on the player or because they want to know what I am hearing, what is what do I think is more of an industry consensus on a player? Where do I think a player is likely to, for the draft? Where do I think he's likely to fit in in the draft? And I very occasionally will hear back from someone in an organization about, I know of a team this year, I won't say who it was, um, because they're probably listening, but they were upset I left a certain player in their system off of my pro top 100 list this uh-huh. winter and since then i think i you know my choice has been it's held up so far um you know we'll see what the you know whether that's still the case but also i do they never said anything i found this out sort of third hand you know hey team x was really you know they were pretty mad you left them off and i'm like it's only 100 spots right i gotta make some choices here and there's always going to be somebody upset and there's not a whole lot I can do about that. I just sort of had to, you know, probably used to bother me more when I first got started. Uh, but after a certain amount, I mean, God, I've been doing these lists for 15 years now. And I just sort of learned, you're not going to make everybody happy. You're probably going to just irritate a lot of people <laughs> because you leave players off. And because because I leave players off and because I am pretty firm in my convictions. I try to, you know, this, this player is not on this list for this specific reason. And yeah, that can come off as strident or worse and i kind of have to live with that there's just at some point there's nothing i can say that's going to make you happy if you firmly believe that your player belongs on this list and i just didn't put him on there and that's just there's kind of no way around that yeah and it's very interesting i think because i i definitely relate to that in my own profession because when i write a festival review or any review my feeling is that i i know i'm right meaning that i know that that's how I feel. And so I have to write to how I feel about the thing and be as honest about the movie as I can be in that moment of this is how I feel, this is why it works, this is why it doesn't work. And later, and I think you do this really well, Keith, is like when a player ends up being better than you thought and say, yeah, I got that one wrong. I wouldn't say necessarily that later I say I got it wrong, but I'll rewatch movies later and sometimes go, you know what? I didn't give enough credence to this performance or this tone or I didn't I was expecting maybe something else and the movie actually was something different and it took me a second viewing to for it to fully kind of make sense and I mean I think that's just kind of the process I think that you have to be in my line of work and probably your line of work too you have to be firm in how you feel about something but Mm -hmm. be very open to the idea that you may have missed something and I think most thoughtful readers or listeners I think they get that. Maybe I'm being optimistic in your case. I don't know in terms of how you, in terms of what you have to deal with. But I think that most people, 
there's enough goodwill there to understand that like, okay, this is how they felt in that moment and it may and it may change. What's funny for you is that as players, players develop, players Correct. change. Yes. The movie stays the same. The person who watches it is a different person later and then mm-hmm. like things change, things become more fashionable, but they become less fashionable. Um, but the movie itself is the same. The player actually kind of evolves and may surprise you or disappoint you because the thing that you thought that they had, they never develop or, you know, their K rate goes up or whatever it is, that right. thing actually changes and you can't predict that. In some ways, the movie is the movie. It's always going to be that thing, but how we look at it may change over time. Sure. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I also wanted to ask you about uh, the Godfather movies, which the listeners to this pod, regular listeners to this podcast know um, from last week's episode. Uh, my wife and I just watched the Godfather trilogy. For me, it was the first time seeing any of those three movies. We decided to binge it because it's the 50th anniversary of the release of the first Godfather movie. You have written multiple pieces about the Godfather or its little empire, uh, including a great piece from, I guess, about three, four months ago for Mel Magazine on Al Pacino and how that was kind of his big breakout role. I literally, the movie started and I turned to my wife and said, oh my God, is that baby Al Pacino? Uh-huh. Right? I was lo- along with baby Diane Keaton, who I legit did not recognize for like an hour of the movie. I was like, oh my God. I still, even though I know it's her and I still don't realize that it's her. It turns out 50 years is a long time. Long time. Yeah, that's yeah. pre-Annie Hall for her. Yeah. That, right. That's, yeah, right. Yeah. Just the yeah. comparison. I mean, Annie Hall, that's very clearly Diane Keaton in this one. Until she, when she starts talking more, then you're uh-huh. like, oh, I know that voice. But yeah. she certainly doesn't look like herself. And it is – so for me as a very, very latecomer to these movies, it was so interesting to see how – much more the first one held up than I expected, right? That's a 50-year-old mob movie that could easily be filled with uh, stereotypes, especially of Italian-Americans, of which I am one. Um, And I thought was actually pretty good, pretty reasonable on that front. And the story and the characters, I I don't know what it was like for people. I was negative one when that movie came out. (laughs) But it was still incredibly compelling and interesting and well-drawn out. And fascinating to me that a three-hour movie at that point became – at one point, it was the uh, highest-grossing movie in U.S. film history, um, that it, this became this sort of national and eventually global phenomenon. So I'm curious, for, first of all, sort of you went back and rewatched it for your writing for Mel. You and Will discussed the first Godfather movie on the podcast uh, in March. You know, what was your take? Obviously, not the first time you'd seen the movie, but – how did you feel? Did, have your views on the movie evolved? Because you said the movie stayed the same, but you have. Yeah, I so I first saw it for its twenty fifth anniversary. I'm pretty sure uh, mm-hmm. it had a re release when you were twelve, right? When I was a wee lad. Yes, yes. I asked my parents' permission to go, and uh, I was actually living in Los Angeles by that point. And I bring that up because you've seen the movie recently. I saw it at the what was then called, well, the, the Chinese theater. Yeah. And you see the Chinese theater in the LA shot in The Godfather. And it was great to actually see that scene or that shot in the Chinese theater mm-hmm. as we were watching the movie. And I was pretty blown away then. And I've seen it in the theater uh, once since then. Uh, this time, I actually watched it on my laptop, which is obviously not your preferred way to watch that movie. But we were going to talk about, talk about it for the podcast and I wanted to to write about it for the Al Pacino thing. I gotta say, even on a laptop, I was impressed. 
Like, that's not the ideal way to see, see it the first time, obviously. Sure. But I, I think one of the things that people... The movie is great, and it's sort of a consensus great movie. And one of the challenges with consensus great movies is that there's always a bit of a... Uh, people can't see me doing this, but there's sort of an arms-folded motion that people can have sometimes with great movies, whether it's Casablanca or Citizen Kane. We're like, all right, people say Singing in the Rain's great. Is it that great? And there's sometimes a a resistance um, because other people have imposed that upon you, that the movie is great and that you should like it. The thing that I think that's so amazing about The Godfather, which I, I still think is absolutely amazing, is that it's really, really entertaining on a like packed audience kind of way. I mean, you mentioned about how popular that movie was even back in its day. Mm-hmm. The movie plays really well. Like it's just a movie that just like moves like really, really well. It's yes. well paced. It's not a three hour movie where you're like, okay, how many bathroom breaks am I going to have to have while watching this? Maybe when he goes to Sicily, though I think that sequence is great. That's as close as that movie gets to slowing down maybe at all. And even at the time there was debate, like the studio didn't want him to go to Sicily. It's like that it it slows the story down and Coppola sort of fought for it. Um, That series, The Offer, which is on Mm -hmm. Paramount Plus, which I also wrote about, it's not great. I mean, I don't think people need to rush out and see it, but it it is kind of fun because it does sort of flesh out some of the debates about doing this versus doing this or Al Pacino, he's not a star. We need somebody bigger. The whole movie, though, moves so well. And it's also a lot funnier. Like when I've seen that movie with an audience, you hear more laughs. I think sometimes... We are, unless it's something like, say, like Singing in the Rain or like, I don't know, The Producers, where mm-hmm. it's supposed to be a comedy and you're sort of geared right. to laugh at home. I think sometimes when we watch a movie like Citizen Kane or whatever, and we watch it at home, we think, well, this is a great movie, so it must be a serious movie and I shouldn't laugh. But when you see those movies in a theater, people laugh at stuff because there are jokes in the movie and people don't realize it. And so even like watching The Godfather at home this last time, I was like, just the family like interplay is really funny sometimes. Like some of the the wedding stuff at the beginning is really, really funny as you meet the family members and stuff like that. And there's nothing musty about that movie. Like there's nothing where you have to go, well, you see for its time, it was a big deal. Like, I think you had seen King Kong Summit recently because I think we talked about that. And King Kong, you have to say, listen, there is some stuff in this movie that is problematic and dated. Yep. But the effects are really groundbreaking for their time, though I would also argue they're pretty amazing even now. But They like, are, yes. But you have to kind of like, you know, and I think like places like TCM have done a really good job of saying like, you know, Psycho has problematic elements. Gone with the Wind has problematic elements. You don't really have to do that either in terms of whether it's problematic elements or just like, well, for its time, it was a big deal. Mm-hmm. But now it may seem kind of old-fashioned. Like the Godfather plays really, really well. I mean, the, the debate is almost um, which one's better, the Godfather right. or the Godfather Part Two, Because you've watched them, you and your wife, I'm kind of curious. Godfather Part Two is amazing. Love that movie. I still think I might lean towards one, though it feels like the consensus is moving towards part two being the better of the two movies. So where did you land That's so interesting because I thought one was pretty clearly better. That two was good. Um, but the split narrative in two really interrupted the flow of the movie for me in a pretty, in, in a way that detracted from the experience where, and, and I did not think they were equal either. I did not at all have equal interest in the two. Um, as much as baby Robert De Niro is good, uh-huh. that – and I liked some of what they did as a New Yorker, as somebody with Italian roots. I grew up outside the city. My parents both grew up in the Bronx. They are both Italian. My mother's 100 percent. My father's half. It, there's a lot of that that I'm, I would watch and say, oh, I – I recognize bits of my culture in there, especially a lot of the food stuff. And also, I'm glad you mentioned the wedding, too, where my wife is, is like, what is with you Italians and the money at the weddings? And I'm like, the only thing they missed a little bit, and there was a little bit of this, was they give you the money and then they slap your cheek. All right, yeah, you know, good. It's good. Yeah, congratulations. You did good. Yeah. Though it is funny, in a movie, 
people might say, oh, it's so stereotypical. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, they might, that might be a thing. Yeah. Where it's, it's so true, but, but like, that it might. right. Yes. <laughs> and it was, I do love the symmetry of each one of the three movies starts with a big celebration like that, too. There's, there's so much taken as a whole, the benefit to us of watching all nine hours uh, over the course of a weekend it was you also pick up some of the structure that is common to all three of them. But the fact that one was basically a single narrative, some different strands, obviously, but you pretty much stay in this one narrative around Vito and obviously the transition into Michael. Whereas the second movie, it's split. And obviously there's an attempt to draw parallels between them. I get it. It's not, I'm not criticizing, I'm not, feel like I'm not qualified to criticize that, but it made one a much better experience for me than two. And then three to me was like an afterthought like that. Uh I just thought that didn't need to be made. And the one thing I wanted to ask you about three, which, you know, now so much of the uh, story around that movie is Sofia Coppola. And going back to the time, it's kind of amazing that she's managed to make this great career for herself after her sort of coming out in the film world was getting savaged for a performance that she was never supposed to give in the first place. And she's not good. I'm not going to defend the performance. But to me, she was not the worst thing about that. Like, she's not that pro- – Winona Ryder plays that part as scheduled. That movie's still not on par with the first two for me, Not in, especially not in terms of story. It just did not feel like the story held together was as compelling, convincing as the first two were, where the first two just – uh, I especially the first one. I'm just lost in the story, and I'm, I say that as somebody who's not like a mob movie guy, mob fiction guy, but I was in. I was pretty much hooked from about 15 minutes in, and they had me till the very end of the movie. And in three, the whole time, I'm like, "That's dumb. That's dumb. I don't like that." <laughs> you know, I'm throwing popcorn at the TV screen. And it well, just didn't work for me. Yeah, I mean, did you see the new version? By the way, did you see Coda? That, yeah, that it's, version, it's, which it seems to be the only one you can stream right now is that right i wonder if that was the case i mean because it's what's weird with like because with coppola you can find apocalypse now redux but there's also apocalypse now final cuts yes and final cut is now his recent preferred version though he said redux was a long time with the one he preferred i I was curious i think coda is the only version that exists now yeah i I mentioned this in the metal piece but i do think it's really true that the, the biggest problem with three is it's not one or two my yeah. argument is that if you if that was just a movie independent of those two movies, it's a good movie. It's a good mm-hmm. movie, but it suffers in comparison. And I mean, that th- that's a high bar to get to. Sure. Two of the, I don't know, 20, 30 greatest films in U.S. in American yeah. film history. I mean, the fact that it looks like the first two movies after all this time is kind of amazing. I feel yeah. like, like Gordon Willis, the cinematographer that he worked with um, and then kind of created this just amazing like – dark chiaroscuro look where like everybody is bathed like they're they're drowning in shadows those characters and mm-hmm. like the third movie looks the same after all those years yeah i mean i also i think the third movie just sort of suffers because i think pacino is good in it but i don't love him as much and yeah. i do think that some of the latter day pacino mannerisms mm-hmm. i mean the, the you were so nice to mention my my mel piece which i really appreciate one of the, the main thrust of that piece is like when you watch the original godfather again you're like oh my god like al pacino so on point and so focused and so he has outbursts but so reserved in a lot of ways yes and i think we've become so conditioned to more recent al pacino where it's hoo-ha and that's like yeah. the thing that you know that has become his thing now and like listen i mean this absolutely sincerely i love him in Jack and Jill where he does his Dunkachino thing. And if you have not watched that, <laughs> that clip I think is genuinely hilarious. And I love that he did it. But in recent years, he hasn't been as sharp. He hasn't been as on point. And I think you see a little bit of that in the performance in uh, Godfather 3. And you go back and watch the first two movies and you think, like, this guy is just lethal in those mm-hmm. first two movies as an actor where it's just like, I mean, everybody is so good in that movie. You ask me, like, things that have changed or held up or whatever. I also think Marlon Brando is great in Godfather and there's some debate about is he too hammy. I think Brando's great. I I'm love Brando. Yes. I, I think Brando's terrific in that movie. I think he's exactly right for that character. But Chino is so 
reserve that if people have not seen that movie like you and your wife it can be a bit of a shock oh yeah because you're like he's he's such a good looking guy not that he's not now but like he's so young and handsome and like reserved and you kind of need that for that character in the first movie because that whole movie is a pseudo inspirational story about how a guy becomes the head of his family like right. th- that's the pre uh, arrested development like another michael <laughs> where yes. it's like he has to take care of his crazy family because they yep. have lots of problems and the father you know a different type of problem with with that father versus the godfather uh father but the son has to step in and yep. like sort of sort of uh I'm sure when they were doing Arrested Development, Godfather was there. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Clearly. Was their model. But you need somebody who is more reserved so that when the transformation happens and you're like, this is amazing. He's protected his father, protected his family. Oh, no. At the end, you you need to have a sense of a character sort of losing their soul. And Pacino does that so well. And- Again, I, I you know not to pick on part three, but I think it's more there's more of a dying of the light quality in that character at that point, and I think Pacino kind of does he 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 gives it like the like the power it sort of needs, but I think the character is just not as interesting at that point yes. uh, in his life. Whereas in parts one and part two, that character is so fascinating and so tragic. The third is kind of the aftermath, and I agree with you about I mean about. Um, Sophia Coppola, where Winona Ryder pulled out, Coppola basically like as a, a last ditch sort of thing, cast his daughter. And I think what is also very interesting, I think would be very different now versus back then in the early 90s. There is a sexist tone to some of those reviews back then. It's sort mm-hmm. of like, who does she think she is? Yep. And there's a meanness to it. My feeling as a film critic is that if a performance is bad, you say the performance is bad. But there's something a little... There's something kind of mean, and there's something that feels a little bit like, well, he's her daughter, so how dare him? And there's like, so where it's it it felt a little more personal and vicious in a way that I don't think. uh, Listen, social media is bad in lots of ways, but I think there have been a lot more pushback now of like, okay, the performance is not great, but like back off a little bit um where back then it was i think she was much more fair game and and to your point keith like the fact that she has developed this oscar-winning career and made some really good movies i'm actually a big fan of marie antoinette which some people don't love but (laughs) i love that movie um i think she's made some really good stuff and the fact that she's actually like had a career after that obviously listen she's in the family so i'm sure that she's had help along the way but the films do speak for themselves. I do think yeah. that she's done some really strong work. Um, to recover from that um, is put it this way: when Coda came out, I even feel like some people were even uh, retroactively nicer to her. Um, mm-hmm. Kind of, you know, kind of like, ah, eh, sorry about that. She's not great, but we probably could have been nicer about uh, about that. It was much more bothersome to me that she and Vincent, their characters, are first cousins, and uh-huh. they're supposed to be having some like. It, okay, okay, this is supposed to be like 1980 or something, right? This is not 1880 or or 1850 Victorian England, right? That's just like no, that's not a thing, and that's just that that is just passed off in the movie as almost completely normal. I think there's one comment on it in the entire movie that this is like messed up. Uh huh. That bothered me way more than anything <laughs> about her performance. And by the way, the the I was wondering if you were just going to get to this point. I think the sort of the what you were saying about Pacino too. It's really interesting to me that that comes out in I, I think 1990, and then two years later he wins finally wins his first Oscar, I believe, for Scent of a Woman, yeah. which is very much to me like the wah Pacino, yeah. right? That's what we know. I'm gonna take a flamethrower to this place. Like yes. that's that's. That's the Pacino, I think, if you come in at a certain point or if you're of a certain age, that's the one you remember to watch now to have the benefit of, of history to go back and watch, especially in part one, where he is so understated for so much of the movie. It's like, oh, this is what this guy was really capable of and the actor that he was for a long time. Frankly, I wonder if there was a part of him who's like, I'm going to have to do something different if I'm going to win an Oscar here. Clearly, I need to be shouting and breaking things and because you know on those two performances and those first two movies were clearly very Oscar-worthy. And obviously, he had a lot of competition too, but it is 
interesting and a little disappointing to me to see that he has become a different type of actor and a much, you know, to me, it's much showier. It's okay. This is I'm, maybe this is him saying, I'm just going to give the people what they want. But that, especially part one, that is such an incredible performance that it changed the way I probably will always think about Al Pacino and watching him in movies because now I've seen a completely different side of him than the one I'm used to seeing from the last God from the last 30 years, I'd say. Yeah, it is. I mean, unfortunately, Al Pacino is like many, many great actors who have won an Oscar for their not good performance. Right, for the wrong movie, right? Yeah, yeah for, for a, a, later perf- a later performance, sort of a, hey, he's due. And yeah. the argument I always make is that if you wanted to do that that year at the Academy Awards, you had the opportunity because he was also nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. He is terrific in that movie. I mm. love that movie. And he was... So he was actually nominated for actor and supporting actor that year. And I was like, oh, you can just, and he's right there. Like he's one of the five can, like yeah, one right. of the five finalists. You can just vote him there. And it's in Glengarry Glenn Ross, it's a slightly bigger performance, but it's so great. It's such a great performance. But I'm like, I, I love, love, love that movie. And I've always lamented that when Glengarry Glenn Ross came back to Broadway, I think I'm pretty sure it was Broadway mm. years later. I don't know if you've seen the, the movie, Keith, but uh, Jack Lemon, who's an, one of the older salesmen of the team, mm-hmm. Al Pacino played that character on stage later. And I, was, I would have loved to have seen, I don't want to give anything away for you, but like the, the, the actors or the characters are different ages and the Jack Lemon character is kind of like a kind of washed up and sort of desperately clinging to his, like trying to get some sales. And Al Pacino is like the big stud in the movie. Years later, he took on the role of, of the desperate loser on stage. And we would love to have seen him in that performance uh, in Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. But yeah, I mean, Pacino's seventies in general were just so great. He did so many, so much great stuff. And then he moves to the eighties. He does Scarface. And then something happens. Like yeah. something, something changes. He still did good performances. I think he's great in Donnie Brasco. Mm-hmm. I think he's great in the insider, which I think is sort of an underrated Michael Mann movie. People talk about heat all the time. But I think The Insider is better. I actually like Pacino's performance in The Insider better. He still did good stuff, and he's very good in The Irishman. I think he is hilarious and tragic and wonderful in that movie. So he still had it in him, but more often than not, it was sort of like, I'm just going to kind of lean into this thing that I do now. This is my this is my shtick and this is what I kind of do and I'm an Oscar winner now. And, um, you know, he's, he's one of the greats. I... That's not the performance he should have won an Oscar for, but he is in fine company as far as being like Oscar winner for not good performance. Wrong movie. Yes. Wrong movie. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of that. It's the Lifetime Achievement Award. Well, you weren't great in this, but God, we should have given you an Oscar 10 years ago for this other thing. And so and, and sometimes I just wonder, do they just see them like gold glove voting? They just see the name on the ballot and it's, oh yeah, he's good. Right. I like him. I like Al Pacino. I'll, I'll vote for him. Yeah, and it's like it's you know in that movie. I mean, Sandal Woman is not a good movie, but it's like you know he's he's sort of a sentimental favorite in that movie, and he kind of like you know tells you know he gets the dance scene in that movie, and he, you know he's blind, and he gets to like you know say say snarky things to people. So it it felt like a full meal, and sometimes that gets. Uh, mm. I mean, let, let's not revisit this year's Oscars, but some of those acting <laughs> awards this year were very much um, like wow, that was big. That was a big thing that you big. did in that performance. So yeah. good impersonation. Great, yeah, good great impersonation. impersonation. Listen, I love Jessica Chastain. That is not one of her best performances. It oh is, my god! It in is, a but it's bad big. movie, yeah. an actively bad movie. Yeah, that's yeah, that's all the worst thing. It's not even a good movie that you win the Oscar for. It's right. like yeah, but at least in Will Smith's case, whether you think he deserved the Oscar or not, and we're not going to talk about the other thing. Right, it's a good movie. I, I actually think that's a good movie. Yeah, I, I you like it more than I do. I think it's good, uh, but I, but it's like as somebody who liked Will Smith for quite a long time, I was like, oh yeah, this is the kind of thing you win an Oscar for, <laughs> and and quite often that's a thing that that happens. And and the one thing I just want to throw in because I find this fascinating when I wrote about Al Pacino. Mm-hmm. So Brando wins the Oscar that year for The Godfather, mm-hmm. and everybody remembers that because he didn't show up. He had someone take his place. And that is the thing that people always remember now about that. What they don't remember, and I didn't remember, is that Al Pacino was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, which is ridiculous because he's actually the lead in that movie. Mm-hmm. And Pacino was so mad about it, he 
boycotted the Oscars because of it. It's hilarious to think at some point, if we were, if I had been covering the the film industry at that point, it'd been like, yeah, Al Pacino is boycotting the Oscars. That's kind of a big deal. Cut to Oscars. <laughs> Never mind. Now this whole Brando <laughs> thing has happened. So it's yeah. funny as if that probably Brando should have been a supporting actor and Pacino should have been Clearly. the actor in that category. Yes. That, that's the type of like minutia that most people don't care about. But I just find kind of like fascinating and like film history and Oscar history. I got that out like of that. Wikipedia after we'd watched, or maybe during, I would keep, we was keep, I would keep the Wikipedia page open as we we're watching the movie. One, in case we just didn't follow something that happened, but mostly for the cast, right? Is that so-and-so? Oh my God, that's that person. That's that guy from that other thing. And then ended up down the rabbit hole. I'm like, wait, Al Pacino boycotted the Oscars and no one remembers this at no all. One no yes. one remembers that. Imagine yeah. that. What a futile effort. <laughs> That yeah. was. Imagine that I'm going to make a stand on this. And right. Marlon Brando just upstages you completely. It was the original hold my beer for Oscar ceremonies yes, in yes. terms of just like, let me show you how it's done, kid. In yeah. terms of like, yeah, it's. And by the way, if people uh, are interested in the offer, that that television show, that, that web series or whatever. Yeah. The way they handle the, <laughs> uh, the Brando Oscar win is incredibly dopey. Oh, uh, if really? you can, if you can, it, it's almost worth watching the last episode just to see how they do it. Um, I actually like the series. I actually found it kind of entertaining in a kind of a dumb, cheesy sort of way. But the, it, Miles Teller is good in it. Um, Miles Teller plays the producer of it. Um, Dan Fogler, who I'm not a big fan of, plays Coppola. And he's actually pretty decent as Coppola. And I forget the actor who plays Al Pacino. But he does a really good Al Pacino impression slash performance in that, especially because you've just seen The Godfather, Keith, he plays that Al Pacino. This guy who's like been in theater and hasn't done much film and is still kind of unsure about the whole thing and is a little insecure. It's a really lovely performance. And I I, I wish I had my notes in front of me in terms of who plays. It's Anthony Ippolito, in- who I am not familiar with, actually. Yeah, he's he's not a big name. And in some ways, that's good to have somebody who's not a big name play Pacino because Pacino himself was not a big name at that moment. One of the things I think the offer does decently well is that the, the actors are not so big that you carry with them like a lot of baggage from other performances so they can sure. kind of be they can be coppola they can be robert evans um like it it actually sort of works on if you need that many episodes of it but it's see the godfather if you're entertained by the godfather maybe check out a little bit of the offer it's 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 fun like you know uh, something to watch on a Sunday afternoon while doing laundry or something like yes. that. Yes. So, yeah, we do. Yeah. We watch a lot of things while <laughs> right. doing something else, doing laundry, tidying up, et cetera. I mean, we, I think we watched a good part of Stranger Things while mostly my wife would do put laundry away and I would be doing something else, writing whatever, or she'd be writing and I'd be putting laundry away, something like that. But that's uh, – The Godfather ended up – we ended up having to not do those things just to try to follow along. I know you're talking about The Offer, but just to try to follow along, especially yeah. so much of it wasn't in English. Two, one and two, especially it was like no, no, no. Wait, rewind. I missed the subtitles on that one. <laughs> right, right. Yes. Yeah, my my, my at home version of that is uh, my lovely wife Susan is watching Outlander now, and so she'll mm-hmm. occasionally let. Me, she's keeping me up on what's going on with Outlander. Uh, I'm not watching it, but she's letting me know what's going on as she's she's Probably actually sufficient. sucked into it. Yeah. Yes. My guest this week has been the great Tim Grierson. I didn't even mention that you had a book come out about a little over a year ago now, right? Yeah, uh, they called yeah. This Is How You Make a Movie. And it is out in how many languages at this point? <laughs> you keep posting that it's in like Hungarian and <laughs> Twee. And I'm like, this is unbelievable that this it, it, it's awesome. I'm incredibly flattered. No, thank you. It was, it was, it's, it was always such a nice surprise because often – I would simply get a package in the mail. I would open the package and it would be my book in another language. Like they didn't even like let me know. It was just like surprise. And so it's awesome. The book is in French. Uh, the book is in Japanese. The book is in Spanish. The book is in Russian. I may be forgetting one, but it's incredibly, that's incredibly flattering. And it's also been really nice to get like Instagram stories from readers from other countries that tag me. Like, I'm on the train in France and I'm reading your book and I'm really enjoying it. And like, oh, thank you. Like, I really like that means a lot. I never sort of I had no idea like what the reach of the book would be. But uh, all those cliches about like film is the universal language apparently has proven true. Um, 
with the book. And for people who don't know, it's as the title might suggest, I break down a bunch of different film terminology, whether it's in the world of acting or directing or editing or even composing and also writing and talk about and use examples from different films to illustrate how those things actually work. I use a bunch of different examples from like the silent era all the way to the modern era, uh, a lot of different like international films in there as well. And I, I was always very happy because I sort of assumed I was writing a book for people who were just getting into film. Mm -hmm. And I've been really happy how many of my colleagues uh, have really enjoyed the book, how many people who just love movies have said like, I love your book. It's so great. And like you turned me on to movies I had never heard of. And I really appreciate that too. And so it's kind of cheesy and corny, but it's been kind of the gift that keeps on giving in terms of me finding out like, oh, there's so many people who have really responded to the book. So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, writing it was fun. All the reaction to it has just been gravy since then. Uh, the book is excellent. It also looks great, by the way. It's called This Is How You Make a Movie. It's by my guest, Tim Grierson. You can also follow Tim on Twitter, at Tim Grierson. Find his work at Screen International, at Paste, and at Mel Magazine as well. Tim, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, buddy. That's all for this week's show. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. Stay safe. <laughs>